Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but to the interest, uh, excuse me, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Jason. What a great text. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, uh, I invite you to, to keep your Bibles open there right now as we, we press our mind into God's Word and to pull out that sermon outline that you find in, uh, in the announcement sheet. And while you're doing that, uh, you know, we are at the end of the summer and uh, we're getting ready for next fall. We do have one more week of our summer series. Uh, Marvin Bryant from the Northwest Church of Christ is going to come this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock to the Fellowship Hall to, uh, to teach our adults. And I, I want to say that I, I have been so blessed by, by the, uh, the summer series this, this year. And I, I really want to publicly acknowledge uh, Douglas Brown and the education team that he works with for the, the great work the, uh, the, the planning that they have done, the contacting of the speakers and the development of the theme. Also want to, uh, to recognize Charlie Blank and uh, the work that his, his fellowship uh, committee ministry, his crew, does week in and week out, making sure that the cookies are out and the coffee is out and the water and the iced tea and all of that. I mean, there is a lot of work that goes into making Wednesday night, not just uh, a time that we come together, but an event in which we all come together and praise God together and learn from His Word and fellowship and become not only better disciples, but become a better church. And I think that uh, it's really wonderful that we have all of these folk in our church that work so hard to bless our church week after week after week. And so if you, you have a mind to, you might pull out one of those pink cards and, and, and send one out to, to those folks and thank them for the opportunities that we've had this summer to sit at the feet of some really great teachers of God's Word, as well as enjoy some great cookies. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into the lesson. Father, thank You for this time in which we come and we sing to You, and, and we, we praise the greatness of Your presence in our life. Even when life seems to turn against us, Father, You're there. And just... The sweetness of Your presence next to us, even when life has gone a little bitter, makes all the difference in the world. And we know that we have buoyancy and, and that we have poise 
in these moments like this, Father, that, that, that keep us afloat. And we pray to always have our eyes locked on You. Father, thank You for this great text that teaches us so much about, about Christ and Your love for us in sending Him and He voluntarily coming to this world full of sin and doing what He did on the cross and saying the words that He said to teach us, Father, about the great truths of Your intent and, and Your vision for what creation was to be all about. We pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray that You bless us as we study it. And we pray this in the holy, beautiful name of Jesus and all the church said, Amen and Amen. If you know my son uh, Jordan very well at all, you know that he has had a lifelong uh, passion and love of the game of soccer since he was just, you know, this wee guy, you know, growing up in Brazil. He has loved the sport and uh, has been a, you know, a, a great player and, uh, you know, student of the game. And uh, I remember not long after we had moved back to the States, uh, when he was uh, a preschooler, little guy out there in the backyard, he's dribbling the ball around, and I would go out there with him, and I would kind of shadow him, and we, you know, he would want me to chase him, and he'd zigzag around the yard. And, and uh, you know, one, time he, one day he, he got a little frustrated because he couldn't seem to shake me. He couldn't seem to get any separating, even though he was zigzagging all over the yard. I just was jogging there beside him. And part of the problem was is that for every one of my steps, he had to take about ten. And so I'm just able to, to shadow him. And he, he got a little frustrated and he, he got tired of that and not being able to separate himself with the ball from me. And he, he wanted to quit. And I said, son, don't quit. You just, you just have to try a little bit harder. You know, you have to figure out how to get it done. You have to work it out. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, you don't know what it's like down here. <laughs> One of the things that Christianity teaches is that God, our Father, knows exactly what it's like down here for us. In fact, the Bible claims this. You can write it down on your outline. The Bible claims, Christianity claims, that God became flesh and appeared as a man called Jesus. Let me say that again. Christianity claims that God became flesh. That's the incarnation that's talked about in Philippians chapter 2 in the beginning of the Gospels, and that He appeared as a man called Jesus. Before His crucifixion, over in John chapter 14, at the beginning of that chapter, Jesus is teaching His disciples. He says, I'm going away. You can't come and be with Me, but I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you soon. And there's that famous verse that, that is, is, is quoted all the time. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through Me. And Philip, one of His disciples, asked what I think is a very reasonable question. He says... Lord, just show us the Father and, and it'll be okay. Just show us the Father and it'll be all right. We'll be okay. Just show us the Father. And Jesus says, beginning in verse 9, He says, Have I been with you so long? I mean, Philip, have I been among you so long that you've yet to realize that when you see Me, you see the Father. And if you want to know what the Father is like, you look at Me because the Father's in Me and I'm in the Father. Paul would teach the church in Colossae this same truth. He would say that Jesus, in talking, beginning in, in uh, the first chapter of, of Colossians, he writes this fantastic exposition of what, what it means to believe in Christ and, and what it means to be the Christ. And he says, that Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible nature of God. Colossians 1, verse 15. That is, when you look at Jesus, when you read about Jesus in the text, 
when you, when you see Jesus with your own eyes, you are seeing God. The incarnation, God coming in the flesh. That was such an important truth, friends. In the first century, it became sort of a test as to whether or not you were a Christian, a disciple, a member of, of the church, a, a member of the Lord's body. In fact, John would say it this way. In 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, he says, You know what? There are a lot of deceivers that have gone out into the world who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They've gone out into the world. They are deceivers. Any such a person that denies that Jesus came into the flesh is the Antichrist. Now, I don't know about you, but John's saying pretty plainly, if you don't get this truth and understand it and embrace it, that in Jesus God became flesh then you're the Antichrist. You know, the teaching is not that Jesus was half man and half God. The teaching of the Incarnation is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Now, here's the question that I've been wrestling with for a long time. I may never understand exactly how that happened, how those buttons were, were flipped for that to happen. But what are the implications of Christ, of God, Becoming a man. I mean, why in the world would he do that? And how could he do that? Well, obviously to appear as a man means that Jesus had to divest himself of certain things. Go back to Philippians 2. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is the truth that Paul is talking about with the incarnation. He says, He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, a thing to, to be held on to. But he empties himself. The Greek word there is kenosis. We'll talk about that later. But he empties himself. And in emptying himself, he takes on the form of a servant or a slave or a bondservant. And he's being made in the likeness of men. Wow. Christ did not stop being God, but he voluntarily sacrificed some of his divine prerogatives. You'll remember the first Adam, right? That's the first Adam that we find in Genesis chapter 3. That Adam, there at the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, decided that equality with God was something to be grasped. And one of the reasons that we find ourselves in the world that we're in now, a world full of sin, is because that first Adam decided that equality with God was something to be grasped. The second Adam, which is Jesus... Was, was one who did not consider equality with God to be grasped, but willingly pursued this descent into humility. A descent into humility that made the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Creator of everything. As John would say, there's nothing that has been made that was not made by Him and through Him. That one became an infant that could not clean himself, that could not feed himself, could not even protect himself in becoming humble as he did as a human being, put him in a very vulnerable state. He was on his own volition. Sacrificially, he leaves the, the, the perfect, harmonious relationships that he had with God the Father and God the Spirit to come into a world that hates babies, in fact, hated babies to the point that they were willing to murder some just to get to Him. God became flesh, and in so doing, there are things that He gave up, prerogatives and privileges of heaven that He gave up to become one of us and to know what life is like on earth. What were they? Well, a couple 
Christ gave up the experience of eternity. That's so hard for us to understand. Christ gave up His existence in timelessness and endlessness. The finite is what He became. The infinite has become finite. Now, how in the world do we get our minds around that when we can't even talk about each other without using words to describe each other that revolve and involve time, birth, and marriage, and graduations, and celebrations, and even death? We use words all the time to describe each other and to understand each other that involve aspects of time. Those words and those angles of understanding do not even work with God. They don't apply to God. I mean, think about, think about the psalmist in Psalm 90 as he's trying to think about the everlasting nature of God. He says, before the mountains were born and, and, and you gave birth to the earth and the world which, quite frankly, none of us can imagine existence without existence. He says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Humans cannot begin to understand this kind of existence that is not confined to time. You know why Christ did not begin in Bethlehem? Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. Before there was an infant, there was God the Son. He did not have a beginning in Bethlehem. In fact, John chapter 1, in thinking about the greatness of the Incarnation and introducing Jesus to a world that is hungry to know about its Creator, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so Christ comes into a world that is different from heaven. Christ comes into a world where everything is measured in time. Everything has an expiration date. Nothing lasts. There's nothing that stays the same. Do you know that before the Incarnation, Christ never had to say the words, Farewell. Before the Incarnation, He never had to say, You know what? Time's up. Never. Christ, before the Incarnation, never experienced, never attended a funeral. He was timeless and eternal, and He had endlessness as a part of His nature. And He chose to, to, to leave that kind of endless eternity to come into a world where He was trussed up with minutes and seconds and hours and days. He came into a world where hair turns gray and feet begin to shuffle and backs begin to get bowed. He gave up the experience of eternity for us. And then secondly, Christ gave up the experience of limitlessness. Gave up the experience of limitless. How do you explain where God is? I mean, how do you explain God's location? Where is, where is He? Is He up there? Is He down there? Where, where is He? How do you explain? We know He's everywhere, but how do you explain that? The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He is everywhere. And then there comes the incarnation. Not only does He leave the experience of eternity, but He leaves this limitless and enters into being bounded. There, there, there came a time where deity is in one place at one time. If Jesus is here, then He's not over there. And if He's over there, then He's not here. 
There was a time that when, I mean, did Jesus really look up at the stars at night and marvel at how different it all looks when your vision only goes so far? Even after His life on earth, after He became one of us, after the incarnation, He becomes flesh, He did not stop descending. He's omnipotent, yet He cried. He is the Creator of all things, yet He had no home. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, yet He becomes a bondservant and a slave. He was and is the source of all truth, yet He is unjustly called a blasphemer. He is the Creator of everything. Yet he was mocked and he was spit upon and he was tortured by his creatures. Jesus is the giver of life, yet he was crucified naked on a cross. And with his death and all of the implications and all the ramifications of that death, the descent was final and complete. So why would he do it? Why would he leave that perfect, harmonious relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit to enter into a world like this. I mean, why would he do it? A couple of reasons. To demonstrate the greatness of his love. To demonstrate the greatness of his love. You know, uh, a, a long time ago in the 70s, we, we moved from Texas up to the East Coast. We were the only members of the Absher clan or the, 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 the Aston and the Powers clan to live up on the East Coast, which meant that if we wanted to spend any time with family whatsoever, we had to drive from Washington, D.C., back to the Metroplex, back to Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, Texas, which always involved, I mean, just it was two days of traveling. And so every other year we were coming back at Christmas to spend extended time with the family. We had a 19, it's the 70s, we had a 1968 kind of a purplish-looking Pontiac Bonneville that was as big as this section of pews right here, had a white vinyl interior trunk, that you could put an elephant inside of. And we would load that thing up. Us three boys would pile into the back seat, mom and dad up in the front seat, and we start driving for two days straight to get there. And I mean, we're, we're, you know, it is a long trip. And we go through Virginia, and we start in Bristol, Tennessee, go all the way across to, to Memphis, and then through Arkansas. And finally, we see the magic words, you are now entering Texas as we hit Texarkana, only to realize we're halfway there. And so we finally drive, you know, down, and, it, and it's back in the days, I mean, some of you guys don't remember when it was 55 miles per hour. You remember 55 miles per hour? I mean, it would take you forever. You know, thank goodness, 80, you know, oh, I started to say 85. Eight, uh, it's really 75, isn't it? What is it? Is it 75? It's 75. All right, some of you, hey, don't, some of you drive 80 and 85. I've seen you out on 410. You know what I'm saying. We're driving faster today, and it's lawful, so it's, <laughs> I think I need to confess. <laughs> so we finally drive into Arlington, Texas. We're driving down Abram Street to Overhill to Ruth Street. And it was as if, you know, there was a movement in the, the, the spirit of my grandparents. They just always happened to know when we would drive up. And my granddad would, would, would lean against the door with the screen door open. And my grandmother would come rushing down those steps. And she would say, get in this house. Get out of that car. Get in this house. Get out of the car. Get in this house. So excited. I, we just loved seeing that. But we would go, what's the big deal? And then I got a little older and realized something that they saw that, that I didn't when I was, you know, 14 years old, that the length of the journey was part of the trip. That the length of the journey and that part of the trip was part of the gift of love. 
I mean, we weren't doing that for strangers. We weren't doing that for people that we didn't know anything about. We, that was what we did for people we loved. The length of the trip was part of the gift. And one of the things that, that the Incarnation tells us is that you know, when, when you love somebody the way that God loves us, there is no length to the trip that is too long to be with that person that you love. Secondly, not only does it demonstrate the greatness of His love, but it, He came to experience the fullness of our humanity. Augustine wrote in the 4th century out of the city of God, he said, man's maker was made man that he, although he is ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might know what hunger is, that the fountain of living water might thirst, the light of the world sleep in darkness, the way be tired on its journey. The truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be, bitten, uh, be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 4, says it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet, yet he did not sin. Because that's true, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christ experienced everything we experience in order to help us and to sympathize and to know precisely what needs to be done in our lives when we're facing that adversity or facing that turmoil or facing that threat. When we look at Christ's life, it helps us to understand by watching Him and doing as He did to trust God's promises in moments of fear like He did. When we, when we look at the life of Christ and we meditate on it, what we learn is to trust God's strength in moments of, of weakness. And we learn to trust God's providence in times of need. And we do all of that by following His example, knowing that He knows exactly what it is that we have gone through. And then the last thing, the last thing I'll talk about, not by far the last thing that this means, but to suffer the completeness of God's wrath on our behalf. When Christ left heaven, He knew without a shadow of a doubt how far He was going to have to descend. The Hebrew writer, again, six chapters later in chapter 10 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do Your will, My God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, here I am. I have come.
God as Father. Why? His experience is not as the Son, relational, but it is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is judicial at that point. In other words, it's not paternal, but judicious experience while He's up there on that cross. He is experiencing the completeness of God's wrath on our behalf. He would not reclaim His glory, folks, until He could reclaim you and me. That's why the Incarnation is a big deal. At His first appearing, there were those that could have cared less. They were indifferent. And there were those that had disdain. He came in the flesh and guess what happened? They crucified Him. And there were those that rejected Him. They denied His existence, the truth of his, the reality of the truth of His existence. But in that passage that Jason read for us, Philippians 2, verses 1-11, through 11, at His second coming, everyone will recognize Him for who He is and for what He has done. And that's why Paul says in Titus chapter 2, we look for that blessed hope the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that fact? The fact of the Incarnation. Up here on the screen is a funny looking sheep by the name of Shrek. Shrek the sheep. This sheep disappeared and was found hiding in caves. been missing for six years. And its fleece had grown without having anyone shear him. And by the time they were able to get it off him, this fleece weighed in at an amazing 60 pounds. Now, we've all seen fluffy sheep. You know, when they regularly shear these sheep, it's 10 pounds. This guy has 50 pounds above average. It's enough wool to make 20 men's suits. He's carrying six times the weight because he's not living very close to his shepherd. He's carrying around this burden because he's hiding from his shepherd. When they finally found Shrek, got him to a professional shearer, took 30 minutes. All it took was 30 minutes to clean off six years of, of fleece that had grown without, without help. I can't help but think that we're a lot like this sheep, Shrek. That when we decide that we're going to hide from our shepherd, that we're going to hide from the one that created us and tends our souls, the shepherd of our souls, that when we hide from God, all we do is accumulate and accumulate and pile up burden after burden after burden after burden until we are nearly covered up with it. Have you ever really kind of felt covered up like this by your own sin? Have you ever felt the burden of your sin in such a way that you had a hard time breathing? The answer is to return to the shepherd, the, the guardian of your soul, to not wander away from Him, but to stick close to Him. Because the one that was willing to travel all of the distance from the infinite to the finite, because He loves you, and because He's willing to do something about your burdens, and because he's, he's, he's willing to experience what it is that you experience, and He knows, He knows the, 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 the problem of, of this life that we face every day. Why in the world would we ever stay away from Him, let alone hide in caves? But that's what we do. My invitation to you this morning is to stop hiding, to stop it. You know what the burden of your sin is doing to you. It's weighing you down. There's no need for that. 
Come to the one who loves you. Come to the one who is willing to, to relieve you of, of, the, of that burden, the weight that is, is causing you to have a hard time breathing and seeing and moving and existing and enjoying life the way that God always intended for us to enjoy life. Come to Him and be loved by Him and to, and to feel the lifting of that burden off of your soul in such a way that it truly is a new birth. It is a new life. You feel like a new person. That's why it's called a new birth. Do you want to be born again? Do you want to be forgiven of everything that you've ever done and everything that you're ever going to do because of the love that was found on the cross when Jesus took all of that burden on Himself and died as the penalty for our crimes and our sin and our guilt before a holy God? When I think about the Incarnation, I melt. I melt, especially when it gets all the way down into the center and I'm able to access it in ways that I've never accessed. And I understand. I understand a little bit of why He did it. Ben's going to lead us in a song. We're going to have some, some shepherds down here at the front who are going to help you to know without a shadow of a doubt that all of that can happen for you today. And if that describes you, we want you to come and talk to Him as we stand and praise God together. I stand to praise You, but I fall on my knees. My